we have much to pray about, so let's go ahead and pray. Father God, you are wonderful and deserving of all praise. This morning, because of the state of the world around us, we can echo the psalmist's cry in Psalm 119 when he says, my soul cleaves to the dust, revive me according to your word. Without you, Lord, without your word that you've graciously given us, we would be lost and looking to the surety of eternal death apart from you, deserving of your wrath. But in spite of our sin, you reached out to us and gave us life, life in justification, in forgiveness, in a new heart and new spirit, life through your word and life through your body gathered around us. And so we continue in echoing the psalmist when he says, I have told of my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. Lord, we come here this morning to hear from you through your word rightly taught. We come here to be part of your people and to corporately declare our belief in, in and submission to you. Please forgive us for anything that might hinder our nearness to you. Please wash us clean from our unfaithfulness to the new covenant you have established and from any sin of which we are unaware so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. Lord, you also inspired the psalmist to say, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. This morning we are thankful for your word and revelation that reminds us that you are seated on the sovereign throne of the cosmos. And no matter what happens in this world, we can stand fast knowing you will see it through to your glory and our eternal good. But we are also human, and so when we see men, women, and children mercilessly attacked, our hearts break. And so our hearts are broken for the civilians of Ukraine this morning, and for all their relatives here in the United States who are watching their families endure such hardship and death. We pray that you might use all that Satan intends for evil in the Ukraine, and instead use it for good. We pray for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters who take solace in you, that they might be bold in their declaration of faith in you during this time. We pray that you would comfort them in whatever suffering they encounter. We pray that you would use their witness and strength in the midst of the fighting to draw unbelievers towards you. For all those in and across Eastern Europe and Russia that have the perverse mixture of nationalism and Eastern Orthodoxy confused with your true faith, we pray that you would open their eyes to your desire to draw them near in relationship, not simply in religious trappings. We pray for the Ukrainian refugees who are currently exiled away from their homes. Please care for them through the hospitality of the countries in which they are finding refuge, but also use it as a way to open their eyes to their need for you. We pray for the Russian soldiers as well, that as they encounter the firm resolve of the Ukrainian people and the potential of death, that it would bring conviction to them and point them to their finite humanity, that they might instead look to you in humility. We pray for the various leaders involved. We pray that they will rule according to your wisdom and righteousness. We pray the same for our own president and leaders, that they might act in accordance with your wisdom and justice in assistance to the people of Ukraine. And if these rulers do not do so, we pray that you would remove them and break their arrogant rules so that you might put in place someone who will accomplish what you wish. Lord, we also don't lose sight of the average of a dozen or more Christians across the world that will be killed today for their faith in you. Please continue to proclaim your gospel boldly through those that are willing to encounter persecution and even martyrdom for the sake of your name. And Lord, while we bring all of this lament and intercession to you this morning, we also don't lose sight of the fact that you are at work in your church throughout the world. We give you thanks for the 70 seminary students that graduated from the Bible school in Burkina Faso that we partner with. Please use them throughout the country to proclaim your good news. And please continue to bless Pastor Marcel in his training of those men. And we pray for the, the same for ourselves. 
please let our submission to your word and our resulting love for each other and forbearance with one another be a sign of your spirit dwelling amongst us. As we encounter the call and commission of John the Revelator to proclaim your word, we ask that you would embolden and strengthen us in the call you have placed on each of our lives to go throughout our own lives and preach your gospel. Please speak through our brother Nick as he acts as your mouthpiece now, speaking your word to us. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather now in your name in comfort and security to hear your word. Please humble our hearts with the fact that others are not so blessed this morning and let this press us into your word all the more by your spirit. In Jesus' power and name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. As he mentioned, my name is Nick. I'm the associate pastor here. And so if you are visiting, welcome. Uh, it's a joy to have you here with us this morning worshiping and even now as we hear from the Word of God. If you were like me, uh, and even it was through Hans's prayer, just the, the catastrophe that is taking place over in Ukraine, you have been glued to the news, watching, looking for updates, watching for developments that, that take place, the breaking news. Once again, our world is rocked by war. Once again, our lives and the lives of our children are placed under uncertainty. What will the future look like? What is going to change in my life or in theirs? What is going to be asked of me? What is going to be asked of them? War does this. It causes us to recognize our mortality. It shakes us out of our normal life, and it tells us that things are different now. The emotions and, and questions that surround situation, this situation can be difficult to process and work through. And as I have been watching the news and these events unfold, the images of death and destruction, I wonder, Lord, how long? How long do we have to endure? And what is the purpose of this? This world has so much potential, and yet there is so much suffering. The reality is, is that we do not need to suffer needlessly looking for answers. We can know that God has a purpose for us. God has a plan. And nothing, not even a war, in Ukraine takes God by surprise. God does not wake up and wonder, oh, how did this world just spin so out of control? I'm just not sure what took place or, or what is happening. The world is full of suffering. The world is full of sickness, death, disease, and even war. And the reality of sin, the reality of the effects of sin should cause us to long for salvation. For it is through the events of this world that God will be glorified. And through it all, God still reigns. Jesus Christ continues to exert his dominance on this world, and one day, all will be made right. We should let that sink in. We should let that hit us in our core. Nothing is taking place that shouldn't be taking place. Through all of the hardships, God is gracious and merciful, saving those who call on his name. This is what we have actually covered in the first nine chapters of Revelation. And what we will continue to see unfold before us 
in the following chapters is that Jesus will not only save, but he will make right. He will judge this world and the sin that is in it. Those who who would cause war, those who would set themselves up as God will come under the wrath of God. This is what we have coming ahead of us. This morning, we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 10. A couple of comments about this chapter before we read it. First, this is an interlude chapter. This is uh, the second chapter that we have seen act this way in Revelation. It's a transitionary chapter. It pushes the story forward. The first place we saw this was in chapter 7. Chapter 7 was also an interlude chapter. And in chapter 7, we saw the assembled people of God, 144,000 people that had gathered together and were worshiping him, worshiping God. John, in chapter 1, was given a vision, if you'll remember back that far, and was told that this is the vision that he was to tell and communicate to the people of God. It was then, right, that the seven churches were addressed, the seven complete churches. Here in chapter 10, we'll see that that commission that he received in chapter 1 is clarified and then given a wider audience, not just to the church, but to more than the church. So if you are a note-taker, here is the, uh, the big idea, the title of the sermon. Commissioned to carry the bittersweet message of God. Commissioned to carry the bittersweet message of God. It breaks down like this. John is commissioned by, in verses 1 through 4, He's commissioned with in verses 5 through 10, and he's commissioned to in verse 11. I love that it worked out that way. I get three C's. It's easy for everybody to remember. It doesn't always happen that way, but I guess it was the the creative juices were flowing when I came up with it. I, I would encourage you this morning to ask yourself a question as we work through this sermon. Ask yourself, do you recognize both the bitterness and the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you recognize both the bitter and the sweet news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's go ahead and read chapter 10 together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and his right foot set on the sea and his left on the land. And he called out in a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Right away we see in verses 1 through 4 that John has a new commissioning. John has a new commissioning. Because of the nature of this text, let's read verses 1 through 4 again very briefly. Verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his voice was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll in his hand. And he set his foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out in a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, it was about, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So much like the previous, chapter, uh, previous interlude, chapter 7, which took place between the sixth and the seventh seal, here in chapter 10, where we are this morning, we have an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now, we are progressing our way through Revelation. Uh, much uh, has been described every week, right? It's a corkscrew. We're getting closer and closer and closer to the end, but, and we're covering the same territory, but just different aspects, different views are being covered and looked at. In John's vision here, a mighty angel, one of great magnitude, brings him a message. This angel is very similar to the one that we saw once again in chapter 7. But there are some significant differences with this angel. In fact, some believe that this is no angel, that this is actually Jesus Christ. Now, here's the description of him He was wrapped in a cloud. And his legs were like pillars of fire. Sound familiar? This, this imagery should cause us to remember back to the Exodus, where the people of God were led through the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud at, during the day. The angel also had over his head a rainbow, a sign of God's eternal covenant of peace. We also saw this in chapter 4, that the, the rainbow was surrounding the throne of God. This messenger's face was like the sun, which, once again, is similar to Jesus Christ in in, in, earlier in Revelation when he was sitting on the throne. So what do we have here? What is this? What, who are we seeing? Well, I would personally be ever so slightly lean towards the, the, this being an angel, just for the primary purpose, for primary reason that nowhere, nowhere else in Scripture does, is Jesus referred to as an angel. 
So I would personally lean towards this being an angelic being that comes right from the throne of God. Now, how massive is this being? Well, he places one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Now, as I, I read this, my mind immediately goes to that recent Marvel movie, right? The, uh, the Eternals, where there's this massive being coming up out of the ground, and he looks like he could straddle the ocean and the land. But instead of coming up out of the earth, this, this heavenly being who is so massive comes down from heaven. And, and this imagery is that he possesses power both over the land and the sea. Now, whether this power is granted to him or this is Jesus himself is up for interpretation, but the power that he possesses is clear. It's evident. Like a conquering king, he places both feet on the earth. All of creation is under his authority. His proclamation will be heard. When he opens his mouth, his voice sounds like a lion's roar another allusion to the authority that he possesses. And in his hand, we see that he carries a small scroll. How, how anticlimactic can you get, right? This massive being, right? He's going to have this huge sword, bigger than Goliath, or this mighty shield, or laser beams. No, it's a tiny scroll. Just a tiny scroll. And as he speaks with the sound of a roaring lion, there is, John hears the sound of seven thunders. And when these sound, John gets out his notebook, pulls out of his pen, out of his pocket protector. He's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta write this down. But the messenger slows him down. Wait, wait, wait. That's not what you need to be doing. Don't write that down. In fact, seal it up and put it away. Put it away. There is much that is to happen that God has not revealed to us. There is much to happen that God did not reveal to John or let John write down. Nowhere else in the book of Revelation do we see these seven thunders appear. They were not written down for us to know. God gave John a glimpse here into the future, but that did not let him pass on all of that information. This mystery was sealed up and to this day remains a mystery to us. Much has been made about the book of Revelation, right? I mean, if you are in the church for any amount of time, people are constantly attempting to decipher the mysteries of this book. When is this going to happen? How is this going to look? What's going to take place? But friend, that's not the point of the book of Revelation. It isn't for us to know the day or the hour. It isn't for us to know specific events. Not all has been revealed that is to take place. Looking into days and seasons and, and, and interpreting what's taking place in another country, it's a good way to take our eyes off of where they should be. It's a good way to take our eyes off of the God who calls us to trust him and live by faith. We were not meant to live with our eyes 
on the events of this world, but with our eyes on the reign and the power of Jesus Christ. This is what Revelation is telling us. Take your eyes off of these events. Take your eyes off of this world and hope for heaven. Hope for the reign of Jesus. This week, we've been given a very practical example of this. It is so easy to become fearful. It is so easy to become predictive in an unhealthy way. But we must remember that it isn't for us to know the events and the outcomes, but only what God has revealed clearly in Scripture. For it is in God's Word that we find what we are supposed to be about. This is really the next point in this sermon and John's commissioning here in verses 5 through 10. John is commissioned with. Let's look again at verses 5 through 10. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll, or the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. In John's vision, this massive messenger from God swears an oath. That's the imagery that we have here, and that's what the text says, that he raises his right hand towards heaven, while he holds the scroll in the other hand, in his left hand. Now this scroll is different than the, the previous scroll that we have seen in the book of Revelation. In the previous scroll, the was only able to be opened by the lamb. The lamb unrolled it, and it was the events of history that would take place. But here, this, we have a teeny scroll. And I would present to you, and I believe that this teeny scroll represents God's word. It is scripture. It is the word of God. And so as the angel raises his hand towards heaven, swears an oath, much like we would see in a courtroom, he has his hand on God's word. The message is this, that the mystery of God would be eminently fulfilled as soon as the seventh trumpet sounds. That's it. There will be no more waiting. It will take place. The mystery of God will be fulfilled. When will this happen? We do not know. But God has revealed that it will take place. So here we have this idea presented to us of the mystery of God. Well, what is the mystery of God? Well, I would encourage you to look on the screen at Colossians 2, 1 through 2 with me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, 
being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what is the mystery of God? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mystery revealed by God. While real to those who believe, Jesus is still veiled in mystery to those who do not believe. The mystery of Jesus Christ could be a sermon or a series of sermons or multiple books all by itself. So for the sake of our time this morning, I would encourage us to think very broadly of this mystery as the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Savior and Judge of the world. That is the mystery, that Jesus Christ is both the Savior and the Judge of this world. So in one sense, the mystery has been revealed, right? We know who Jesus is. He has been judged. Sin has been taken care of. But in a whole nother sense, there's a lot of mystery still left. And we see that here in Revelation, and we know that there's more to come. Whether you believe it or not, this world is broken. I know I believe it. Uh, But maybe you came here today because the events of this week caused you to question Maybe you've been here, or maybe you've been here a long time, and you're just realizing that this world is a little more messed up than you realized it was. But the mystery of God is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came down from heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life as fully God and fully man, died in our place on the cross, But it didn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the dead. But here's where that mystery continues. That in dying on the cross, both the immense grace of God and the just punishment of God were displayed. Jesus took on himself the justice of God. He took on himself our punishment for sin. And this act provides grace for all who believe. That's where the justice and the grace meet on the cross. But as we have seen already in the book of Revelation, there is much that is still unknown. For the rule and reign of Christ has not fully been revealed. Oh, we can see glimpses of it here in this church, here in the world. That there will be a day when the seventh trumpet sounds that Jesus will come back to fully judge sin, to fully judge the wicked rulers of this world, to fully judge the injustice that has taken place because of sin, to fully judge your sin and my sin. When? That's the mystery. That is the mystery because we we do not know when that will take place. The idea of God's message being a mystery and the timing is unknown follows after a long line of faithful men in the Old Testament. We see the messenger, and we see that written down here in in verse 7, that the prophets were also those who foretold of the mystery of God. The prophets were men who foretold of the mystery of God. What does this mean? Well, it's very complex in meaning. Uh, But the job of a prophet was to speak 
the word of God, about the coming judgment of God. And in doing so, they presented a means for salvation. So the, judge, the, the prophets, yes, they proclaimed God's judgment. They pro- talked a lot about sin, but it was all filled with God's grace. Here's where salvation can be had. Now, believe it or not, Noah is a great example of an Old Testament prophet. The story of Noah can be found in Genesis 5 through 7. Now, for the sake of our time today, we won't go uh, turn back to Genesis 5 through 7 and read all of it, but I'll summarize it. After creation, sin was out of control, and God was going to judge the earth through a flood. So God commanded Noah to build a boat a massive boat, a large boat that would save all who were on board, all who were on this boat. So with judgment looming, God graciously provided a means for salvation. So Noah did just that. Noah built the boat. Noah built the boat. He built a massive boat. And with judgment coming at any moment, it was imminent he faithfully labored and obeyed what God had commanded him to do. Now, the New Testament speaks of Noah multiple times. We heard from one earlier in Hebrews 11, and let me read that again. 11 verse 7 should be on the screen. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Notice the idea of imminent judgment, judgment that is looming, but yet not seen. God warned Noah about it. Noah's faith and belief in God saved him, and then what did it do? It condemned the world for their unbelief. This is very similar to Revelation. Coming judgment that we previously haven't seen. We know it's, it's out there, but we haven't experienced it yet. Second Peter gives us more insight into Noah and what his life was like before the flood. Second Peter 2.5. If he did not spare the ancient world, he being God, but preserved Noah, who was Noah? A herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah's laboring, building this ark, and he's seen as a preacher of righteousness, proclaiming righteousness, telling people to repent, but looking forward to judgment. Noah proclaimed this righteousness and condemnation on the world before the flood, And it would be through the faith of Noah that God would save. Through the judgment of the flood, God's righteousness, his judgment, and his grace were all visible as God saved some and condemned others. Noah did not know when judgment would come, but he had uh, uh, faith that God would follow through on his promises. It was through that faith It was through Noah's faith that God saved. 
This this isn't unique to Noah. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the job of the prophet, the job of all of the Old Testament prophets was to proclaim the word of God. Salvation is available, but because of sin, judgment is coming. Now, too often we think of prophecy as the the, the strictly telling the future, right? The difference between foretelling and forthtelling. We think of prophecy as foretelling. Well, I have been given a word of the Lord, and here's what's going to happen. That isn't what prophecy is all the time. Much of the time, in fact, most of the time, prophecy is forthtelling. The job of the prophet was to forthtell God's word, to speak God's word to God's people. So with this background, we can look back at Revelation chapter 10, and in verse 8, we see that John is instructed as a prophet to take the scroll that was in the hands of the angel, and he's to take this scroll and eat it. He is to eat the scroll. He does this. And the scroll is both described as both sweet to the mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Sort of like a massive plate of chicken wings, right, Kelton? (laughs) Or maybe it's one of those pre-COVID buffets where you just keep going back for more and it's awesome, and then you're like, oh my goodness, I regret that. My stomach feels bitter. It's angry at me. John is being commissioned here as a prophet to take God's word to people. It's the imagery that we have, and this imagery is right, once again, out of the Old Testament. Look at Ezekiel chapter 2. This is the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel's commissioning. Verses eight, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through Ezekiel three, three, uh, three, chapter 3, verse 3. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house, that rebellious house, but open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate, and it was sweet in my mouth, as sweet as honey. You see the similarities? Both Ezekiel and John were given a scroll to consume. And it was sweet to their lips. Both John and Ezekiel were called to proclaim God's word. I mean, what what great imagery. God's word is indeed sweet. Consuming God's word leaves us, as the psalmist says in 119.103, with a taste of honey. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Isn't that wonderful? Ingesting God's word, reading it, studying it, applying it is sweet. Not like, oh, that's sweet. 
but like really sweet, like honey. But for John, it wasn't only sweet. No, it left a bitterness in his stomach. For John, consuming God's word meant not only seeing the beauty of it, oh, this is great, look at the grace, look at the love, but also the justice and the judgment. Dealing, John had to deal with the hard words of Scripture. See, God's word is clear. It tells us of his mercy and his grace, and this is sweet. But he also tells us of his judgment on sin. John was to proclaim God's word, and it was through ingesting God's word that he would know that bittersweet message. Christian, you and I are much like John. We, too, follow a long line of people who know that God judges sin. We follow a long line of people who are called to tell people about that judgment. We can know that God is full of grace and mercy, but too often in our humanity, we emphasize one extreme or the other, right? We're people that like extremes. For a long time, especially in the West, here in the American church, God's grace has been emphasized. Right? God is gracious. He loves you. This is true. But what we have lost is the reality that God is also judge. No one likes to talk about God being judge. No one likes to talk about the fact that your sin and my sin and our sin is going to be brought to account. I mean, what, why would we want to talk about that? We're not Baptist, right? They can preach the hard stuff. But let me be clear. God's judgment on this world is imminent. God's judgment on this world is imminent, and he will hold the world to account for their wrong. We like to minimize sin. We like to hide it. We like to ignore it or just shove it under the rug or call it something else. It's just who I am. It's just my personality. But consuming the sweetness of God's word is great. But ignoring the reality of judgment will be costly. It will cost eternity to those that we are around. It will cost eternity for our friends and our family. Judgment is imminent. Don't believe me? Look at Ukraine. Right? That's what we've been learning in Revelation. God judges sin. War is an effect of sin. It's part of God's judgment on this world. It's not pleasant. It is not good. And we should long for more. This is the sweet news of the mystery of God, that Christ died for sinners. Judgment has been satisfied for all who believe. So if you are here and profess to be a believer, profess to be one who has responded in belief, I would challenge you to consume more and more of God's word. Not just the easy parts, but the hard parts as well. For we know far too little about who God is. We know far too little about his ways. 
We're quick to soak up the latest political theories, the ins and outs of a virus that we don't really, that isn't really knowable, but we are slow to consume and know God's word. For judgment isn't just coming for non-believers. Christian, your sin will be judged as well. The undealt with sin that we're hiding, sweeping under the rug, calling by another name, will be dealt with. God will deal with us on that final day. In a little bit, we'll be taking communion. This is a time for believers to do two things, remember and proclaim. We do this, how? By eating and consuming a wafer of bread and a swallow of juice. Now, historically and even originally, wine was used, not juice. Wine ask me how I know, is a bitter but sweet drink. Wine is a bitter but sweet drink. And so at communion, we together proclaim not only the sweet salvation that we have through Christ, but the bitterness of judgment and sin. Judgment was poured out on one who did not deserve it. So I would encourage you each week going forward, starting today, prepare your hearts for communion. Prepare yourself through pondering that reality, the bitterness, but yet the sweetness of the good news. The bittersweet reality of the judgment that took place on the cross is what we ought to meditate on. That bitterness, that bittersweet reality is what you and I are called to proclaim it isn't popular. It won't win us Man of the Year awards. It won't like, cause us to be best friends with everybody. But when judgment does come, we will be found to have been faithful. This idea of, uh, of proclamation in Scripture is intrinsic with the idea of judgment. So that leads us to the final point today in verse 11. John was commissioned to, let's see what he was commissioned to. In verse uh, 11. And I was told, you again must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John's job was to act as prophet. The, The first portion of Revelation that we've covered up until this week was written to the seven complete Churches, the church that spans all time and history. But what we see here, now he is to act as prophet about peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The scope of God's judgment will be wide. It will include the entire world. And John is to be this New Testament prophet. His message is clear, but it will not be well-received. Remember, prophecy is better understood as forth-telling God's word. So we can know that John follows in a long line of faithful men who proclaimed coming judgment on sin. But for the most part in the Old Testament, I know there's a few exceptions like Jonah, but for the most part, the prophets in the Old Testament were taking God's message to God's people. wasn't always true, but for the most part. And here we see the same is true, that John's message is for the entire world. 
It isn't limited to the church. In the coming chapters of Revelation, we will see that God won't judge, just judge the world. He will judge those in the church who sympathize with the world. John is to proclaim the fulfillment of the mystery of Christ as eminent, as coming soon, any moment. <clears throat> this is the call that John had. It's also the call that we have to proclaim that good news, that mystery. And being fully transparent, this is one of the areas of my life that I feel extremely ill-equipped in. Evangelism. For whatever reason, I have high goals to go and evangelize my neighbors or the people that I meet, but I always seem to fall flat, at least of my own expectations. I always seem to not be as clear as I had hoped, or I'll just wait for a really good opportunity, and that really good opportunity never arises. And when it has, it's been me just kind of fumbling through, being clear, or wondering if they really got what I was trying to say. But I hope to grow in this. I hope to become better, to speak the clear words of the bittersweet gospel. So the question is this, who in your life needs to know this message? Maybe you've done a really good job at communicating the grace and the mercy of Jesus, the sweet words, but have left out the hard ones. In an effort to, to love and be gracious, which are noble and good, sin and judgment have taken a back seat. When we do that, we stunt the good news. For one cannot be saved if there's nothing to be saved from. The implication of what we see here in our text is that the good news of the gospel is sweet but bitter. It isn't supposed to be easy. It isn't supposed to feel good and to stomach but through the power of God and his word deep in us, we are called, just like John, to proclaim this message. And it is a word that we as a church ought to hold on to. To prophesy, to speak God's word in the world and in the church, that the time will come for final judgment.